DW Inside Europe Hello and welcome to Inside Europe. I'm Kate Laycock in Germany. This week on the show, shock result in the Netherlands. Far-right politician Gert Wilders surges to victory. I think that people would not understand and not accept either that if the biggest winner of the elections would not have an important role in that coalition. And we have to uh, compromise on many issues to make sure that uh, those votes um, um, are getting worth uh, their money. Finland closes all but one border crossing with Russia and choppy waters ahead for Spain's Pedro Sanchez. All those stories and more coming up on the show. A dramatic election night in the Netherlands on Wednesday as Dutch anti-EU, anti-immigrant, far-right populist politician Gert Wilders surged to victory in national elections. Beating all predictions, his Freedom Party won 37 out of 150 seats, well ahead of all other parties. So conclusive was the victory that several of Wilders' political rivals promptly indicated their willingness to enter into coalition talks with him despite having previously ruled out such a cooperation. To get a handle on what this victory means for the Netherlands and for Europe more generally, I spoke to our correspondent, Stefan Boss. I think uh, what happened is that Geert Wilders uh, could express the concerns many people have about massive immigration in the Netherlands. It's a small nation of some uh, 17.5 million people. And I think that turned out to be the main reason. We could already see it ahead of Wednesday's historic elections. More than 30,000 people participated in a public broadcaster opinion poll, the Eén Vandaag or One Today poll showed that nearly half of the Dutch electorate was upset that the cabinet of uh, outgoing Prime Minister Mark Rutte, one of Europe's longest serving leaders, by the way, that he failed on the issue of asylum policy. And the survey showed that eight out of ten voters believe the influx is now too high and want to limit it. Now, it comes at a time when there is a dramatic lack of affordable housing and rising social tensions between Muslims and non-Muslims in several cities of the Netherlands. And in his victory speech, Geert Wilders referred to these tensions. So basically Wilders is now saying that the people have spoken. They said we are sick and tired of this. We will make sure the Dutch people will be number one again and the Dutch also have hope again. And the hope is that people will get their country back. And he adds that we want to make sure that we end the migration tsunami in this nation and that the Netherlands is for the Dutch again. Listen, Stefan, should we uh, get concrete for a moment about what exactly it is that people have voted for? Wilders stood on the platform which promised a total halt on immigration, migrant pushbacks at Dutch borders, but also slashing Dutch payments to the EU, blocking the entrance of all new members, including Ukraine, and stopping arms to Ukraine. So this isn't just an anti-immigration vote, is it? It's also an anti-EU vote. 
Well, yeah, well, to a, to a certain extent it is. Uh, but then I think if you talk about the European Union, what people feel here is that the transition, if you talk about, uh, for instance, uh, policies towards climate change, that that is going too fast. Uh, there are many people who say that um, the Dutch took uh, the lead here and that they don't have the money to catch up with the transition. For instance, the money it, it costs to insulate your home, for instance, and that kind of things, and also the new taxes that were introduced. So I think in that sense, people feel that the European Union is uh, too much uh, dealing with their lives. So that may have been a reason as well. But I really think the uh, migration issue was uh, the main point uh, during this campaign. Uh, Last year, there were uh, netto about uh, 230,000 almost uh, migrants uh, coming in the Netherlands. I have to say that half of that were uh, people from Ukraine. So, you know, it's not only from uh, from the Middle East. But people say, you know, for a small country like the Netherlands, we can't keep up uh, with that, especially if you look to the housing issue and so on. So I think that played a reason uh, as well why Wilders got so many votes, actually. Yeah, I mean, indeed, his victory was so complete that rivals who had previously ruled out power sharing with him have declared themselves ready to hold talks. Uh, One of them is the new leader of the outgoing Conservative Party. What can you tell me about her, Stefan? Dilan Yeselgos is her name, and she had hoped to write history as the first woman prime minister and the first person with a migrant background to become the next prime minister. And actually, the opinion polls uh, went well for her. Uh, even you know, a few weeks ago, uh, she was really seen as a as a as a, the main contender for the job. For us, valt de uitslag tegen. I think that here grote lessen for the politiek in zitten. Yeah, Kate, basically what she is saying that for us the outcome was disappointing. I think politicians have big lessons to learn from this. We did not listen enough to the people and we did not offer enough workable solutions. So that is uh, her explanation why it didn't went her way. Mm, Indeed. So we've now got the woman who might have been, who had hoped to be, the Netherlands' first ever female prime minister and uh, prime minister indeed with migration background entering into coalition talks with Hert Wilders and his far-right party. Uh, Absolutely. And theoretically speaking, there may even be a chance that she still becomes the prime minister. For instance, if the other parties are saying, well, we don't want to have Geert Wilders as prime minister, you know, it may well be possible that in the end she still becomes prime minister. That is a theory at the moment. I'm not saying that it's going this way, but it may be possible. Right. Okay. I mean, it would indeed be an extraordinary constellation. Um, Can I just uh, stay with this issue of the coalition talks for a minute, uh, Stefan? Uh, What kind of sticking points are there likely to be? What can we expect for the weeks and uh, quite possibly months to come? I think uh, one of the sticking points will be to make sure that um, he uh, will no longer uh, repeat his rhetoric about banning the Quran, about uh, closing mosques and closing uh, Islamic uh, institutions and, and schools uh, and even uh, about the, he- the headscarves in, in, in government buildings and so on because uh, that is, according to the, some politicians, really against the uh, constitution of the Netherlands.
Nevertheless, not everyone in uh, the Netherlands is convinced of Geert uh, Wilder's commitment to <laughs> democracy, uh, Stefan. Yeah, that's uh, that's well uh, said, uh, Kate, because indeed, uh, for instance, the European Union heavyweight Frans Timmermans, uh, known for his policies as the uh, EU's climate commissioner, uh, he just returned from Brussels uh, to lead uh, the leftist alliance of Greens and Social Democrats. We zijn democraten, de democratie heeft gesproken. Nu breekt het uur aan dat wij de democratie gaan verdedigen. Well, he basically said, uh, we are Democrats, democracy has spoken, now the hour has come to defend democracy. We will never join a coalition with a party that excludes Dutch people. And that uh, really led to a big applause, as you could hear there. Listen, Stefan, I'd like to end this talk by widening our focus out a bit and looking at the broader European picture. So... We're about to enter into a crucial election year with national elections in various countries, including France, where the far-right Rassemblement National is in ascendance, as well as European parliamentary elections coming up in 2024. How is Wilder's victory being greeted outside of the country? Well, Kate, uh, I find it very interesting that uh, outside uh, the Netherlands, uh, Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban was among the first to congratulate Wilders, uh, saying there was a wind of change. I have to say that both men know each other well. And last year, he even received an award from Hungary for his political activities. Now, I also know that Wilders, uh, who I met, by the way, in Hungary, he has a Hungarian wife with whom he has lived in safe houses since 2002, following the assassination of the Dutch Islam critical politician Pim Fortuyn, but there were also uh, congratulatory messages from um, France and also even from from Germany, uh, from uh, right wing uh, groups there. So you know, and I think it all fits in, of course, with the upcoming uh, European elections as well. Uh, and they, of course, see it as a, a victory uh, for uh, nationalists and uh, anti-Islam groups in Europe. Stefan Boss there, talking to me from Amsterdam. Coalition talks may be over in Spain, but that doesn't mean that there isn't still a rocky road ahead for new and former Prime Minister Pedro Sanchez. Sanchez's new four-year term was secured with the help of Catalan separatist parties, an alliance which is proving to be one of the most contentious political formations in Spain's post-Franco history. Protests against Sanchez's PSOE party have been running daily for over two weeks and on Sunday opposition groups and leaders held a mass rally in the centre of Madrid. So, why so much tension? Our Madrid correspondent Ashish Sharma has been out in the streets finding out. Every night for over two weeks, the streets outside the PSOE's headquarters here in Madrid have borne the anger of protesters unhappy with Pedro Sanchez. Bottles have rained down on the police, barricades kicked asunder, dustbins set alight. The main anger is because this new government is allied to Catalan separatist groups that in 2017 held an illegal referendum for a breakaway independent Catalonia. 
That was against a Spanish constitution and it led to the national government taking over the region and the Catalan president, Carlos Puigdemont, leader of the Junts Catalan party behind the referendum, fled to Brussels, where he's been living ever since. He has a national arrest warrant hanging over his head, which means he faces prison should he ever set foot in Spain. That was until last week, when Sanchez struck a deal with Junts Catalan. A law of amnesty to pardon all those who were involved in that referendum was sent to the Constitutional Court and Sanchez picked up their seven seats that he needed to become Prime Minister. Well, I was reporting for Inside Europe, just here I'm standing now, some 100 metres from Congress. It's a normal scene today, traffic passing through, tourists taking photos, people sitting around in street cafes. A far cry from the scene on the day that Sanchez's victory was announced in Congress. Well, as I approach the main core of the demonstration, I'm just looking at some of the placards which are on display here. One says, uh, Pedro Sanchez, el mentiroso, Pedro Sanchez, the liar. Several placards are simply saying, Pedro Sanchez, traidor, which is, of course, Spanish for traitor. Another one I'm looking at that says, amnesty, no. And another one that describes Pedro Sanchez as nothing more than a dictator. Pedro Sánchez is a sort of, uh, for me, it's a psycho <laughs> because it's really a man who has uh, no feelings for the real society in Spain. He just uh, wants to stay in power. I mean, he's uh, just uh, sold the Spanish constitution because the amnesty is against the Spanish constitution. Uh, only for the seven votes of the independent uh, party, Junts, and the, the Republican Independent Party, ERC. And uh, he's putting into the streets uh, people who is convicted just for remaining in power. So if uh, he does that, he can do anything he wants. Seven years ago in Catalonia, they declared an independent country when it was against our country, of course. And these people have been uh, ju uh, judged by juries and they have uh, a sentence on them. And then Pedro Sánchez has said, nothing has happened. It was a mistake, and it's against constitution, it's against democracy, and it's it's illegal, it's like a crime, isn't it? Prometo, por mi conciencia y honor, cumplir fielmente las obligaciones del cargo de presidente del gobierno. While the streets raged the day after his victory in Congress, Sánchez was being received by the king, who confirmed his premiership. The anger on display is largely being fueled by the right and the extreme right wing, but it would be wrong to assume that this is just the exploitation by extremists. Since 2012, Spain has been splitting into branches on both right and left. This has surfaced consistently in inconclusive election results. Pablo Simon is a professor of political science at Carlos III University. The challenge that this government and in specific Pedro Sánchez has had is to change the conversation in my country. 
I mean by that, that if we are all the time talking about the territorial issues, about Catalonia, pro-independence parties, amnesty law, then all the conversation is going to be very polarized. But in the moment in which you start to talk about what are the real concerns of the Spanish population, meaning by that employment, education, social affairs, then the government can win, uh, again, some confidence of the population because at the end of the day, people do not care very much about what is going on with the pro-independence parties, but they care a lot about uh, social issues and the economic affairs. On Monday, Pedro Sanchez announced his new cabinet. He described it as being experienced and innovative, but it is also battle-hardened. The Partido Popular is angered at having won an election but not a government. The extreme right-wing Vox Party is portraying the PSOE as being anti-constitutional and within his own coalition he has Catalan parties that want independence. Rough waters indeed for Captain Sanchez to navigate through. Ashish Sharma, DW, Madrid. This is indeed a time of massive change and uncertainty, not just in Spain, but across Europe. So to stay abreast of the key developments as we head towards another crucial election year, make sure that you're subscribed to our podcast, which is available on all the usual platforms. I'm Kate Laycock in Germany. You're listening to Inside Europe. As of midnight on Friday, all but the northernmost crossing point between Finland and Russia will be closed. The decision by the Finnish government comes in response to the entrance into the EU of some 600 people who crossed over in the space of a month from Russia into Finland without valid travel documentation. The people come from a range of nations, including Yemen, Afghanistan, Kenya, Morocco, Pakistan, Somalia and Syria, and are expected to claim asylum within the bloc. Terry Schultz takes a look at what Helsinki is calling a hybrid attack on its stability. For months, Finland has been dealing with an increasing flow of would-be migrants who show up at border crossings with no visas, asking for asylum. Finally, as the trickle went from a handful to dozens per day, Helsinki tried to block the Russian tactic by closing first its four southernmost border stations and now all but the one furthest north. Here's Finnish Interior Minister Mari Grantanen explaining the decision through an interpreter. Those that have arrived to the border have told that they have received help in arrival. And even though the numbers have not been so significant on their own, but the phenomenon as such is more important. And that's why Finland wants to send a clear message that this uh, is not acceptable. The influx reverses long-standing cooperation with Russia, in which officials would prevent people without visas from going to the border. Now these groups of mostly young men from Afghanistan, Iraq, Somalia and Syria are reportedly being driven to the border area, given bicycles, although crossing by both bike and foot are banned, and in some cases even physically being pushed across the border if they show reluctance. Foreign policy analyst Henry Von Hunnen says it's impossible to know exactly why Russia chose this timing, but it's not hard to see why it's useful. Clearly something that Russia wants out of this is to see how we react. 
So in a way, this could be an intelligence operation to showcase Finland's ability to act in a situation like this. Russia is testing our resilience, our ability to take pressure when lives are at stake and when international agreements are at stake. But I think this is also one of these moments where you have to, as a decision maker, as a politician in, in, in Finland, you'd have to consider that your responsibility is also to your constituents and also to the Finnish people. So in this sense, the issue of national security also must be prioritized. The Russian government calls accusations that it's involved groundless and says Finland's border restrictions are absurd. Russian Foreign Ministry spokeswoman Marina Zakharova told a briefing in Moscow that Finland should abandon what she called destructive ideas like the total closure of the border. Finland cannot legally close the border completely because international law requires that at least one land crossing be available for people to seek asylum. That's why the most recent move leaves open the northernmost border station, called Raya Joseppi, with the government hoping fewer people make it up that far. Just in case, Helsinki has asked for backup of 60 officers from the European Union's border control agency Frontex. Speaking at a session of the European Parliament devoted to the issue Tuesday night, EU Home Affairs Commissioner Uwe Johansson pledged the bloc's support. Russia is now using any means available to destabilize our union, our member states and our neighbors. The goal? To break our united front against Russia's war of aggression. To Russia we say, we will not let you divide us. To Finland we say, the Finnish border is the EU's border. The European Union is behind you. But even if Finland can handle these relatively small numbers of new arrivals on a practical level, the situation could become more difficult on a political and moral level with winter well underway. Here's Henry Vanhanen again. You know, if Russia indeed starts to send people, let's say elderly people, sick people, people who are in bad shape in these weather conditions, which are likely to become uh, more challenging by the day as we're approaching wintertime in Finland, where it can get to minus 20 and sometimes even minus 30 degrees if the weather is really cold. So in this sense, it becomes a test for our resilience. How do we deal with the idea of, of a potential humanitarian crisis and, 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 you know, situations like these on our borders? Obviously, we have obligations to, to, to help people who are seeking a, asylum. But on the other hand, if we indicate our willingness to draw back from the decision of to close these borders that also sends the signal that that at the end of the day we can be pressured to do what Russia wants. So this is definitely not an easy place for the decision makers in Finland. There have already been reports that people in poor physical condition are being dropped at the border, as well as that there are groups being gathered on the Russian side in the far north preparing to seek entry. Terry Schultz, DW, Brussels. DW is part of the Info Migrants Network, providing migrants to Europe with information at every step of their journey. To find out more, go to www.infomigrants.net. Now, time for this. Last week, we asked you when and where Colossus, the world's first large-scale electronic computer, went into use. The answer was 1944 in Bletchley Park, UK, home of Britain's wartime code-cracking operation, beating Penn State's ENIAC machine by one year. This week, we're asking which of these countries does not 
share a border with Russia? Is it Finland, Norway or Sweden? If you think you know the answer or if you just want to take a guess, then head over to Spotify to take part in the poll. This is Inside Europe and I'm Kate Laycock in Germany. You're listening to Inside Europe. I'm Kate Laycock in Germany. Coming up in the next half hour, double game. Just what is Erdogan's position on the Middle East? Mafia mega trial, hundreds of mobsters behind bars. Ndrangheta works with the state, works with politicians. And this is really important to understand because uh, there is a huge difference from being just an alternative to the state and being basically embedded within the state. AI legislation, the EU is in a race against time, and Night at the Circus, German contemporary circus, that is. <laughs> Both stories and more coming up on the programme. Broadcasting from Germany. This is Inside Europe. It's a pretty open assumption in German political circles that Recep Tayyip Erdogan's visits to Berlin are to be endured, not enjoyed. And this time round, any governmental trepidation ahead of the Turkish president's visit last week would have been well justified. Whilst German Chancellor Olaf Scholz has positioned himself as an ally of Israel in the current Middle East conflict, Erdogan has rejected the designation of Hamas as a terrorist organization, instead referring to the armed Palestinian group as a liberation movement. However, whilst Erdogan's rhetoric has caused exasperation in Europe, what he says and what he does appear to be very different. Our Turkey correspondent Dorian Jones reports. Zunächst mal, ich habe es bereits in meinem Statement gesagt, Israel hat ein Selbstverteidigungsrecht. Es war ein furchtbarer, brutaler Angriff, den die Hamas gemacht hat auf Kinder. At a press conference in Berlin with the German Chancellor Olaf Scholz, Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan sought to take the moral high ground. He condemned Israel's ongoing assault on Gaza and chided Berlin for what he called its silence over the growing civilian death toll. I speak freely because we don't owe anything to Israel, Erdogan said, suggesting that Germany supported Israel out of guilt over the Holocaust. But the Turkish leader's former Prime Minister, Ahmed Davutoglu, who now leads his own party, picked up on Erdogan's Berlin rhetoric, accusing him of double standards. Israel 
Why continue oil shipments from Cheyenne to Israel if we owe nothing? We applaud the president's claim of no debt to Israel, but it's crucial to scrutinize why our resources, fuel for Israeli planes, food for their soldiers, building materials for settlers, are still being supplied. A supertanker leaving the Turkish port of Jehan, carrying hundreds of thousands of barrels of oil to Israel. Oil pipelines from Azerbaijan and Iraqi Kurdistan terminate at Jehan and make Turkey a key supplier of oil to Israel. And those supplies are continuing to flow, explains Mehmet Ugucu of the London Energy Club. The bulk of Israeli oil needs come from either Azerbaijan or Iraqi Kurdistan. I think the latest figures show that Azerbaijan provides around 40% of Israel's oil needs. It comes all the way to Jehan and then from Jehan uh, it's sent to the Israeli port where it's then moved to one of the refineries, I guess. But Erdogan is starting to face growing international pressure on social media to cut off deliveries to Israel. This month, during a press conference in Ankara, Iran's foreign minister, Hussein Amir Abdullahayn, called on countries delivering oil to Israel to cut their supplies, a call ignored by his visibly irritated Turkish counterpart, Hakan Fidan. But analyst Ugucu says cutting off Israeli oil supplies would only have a symbolic impact. I don't think that Israel will suffer in any way because oil is plentiful in the world markets. They can bring it from Brazil or from Canada or from some of the African countries where they have good relations. But Turkey has other ways of harming Israel if it wanted to strike a blow, explains Ilhan Uzgel, a columnist for Turkey's Kusadalga news portal. Uh, stop the working of the Kurajik radar station in Malatya in Turkey, which is critical for the NATO's missile defense system. Israel also plays a part, and as far as we know, that it also protects the airspace of Israel. Netanyahu! Erdogan is continuing with his rhetoric against Israel, describing Hamas as a liberation movement and attacking Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. But the Turkish leader's actions remain more measured. This month he recalled Turkey's ambassador to Israel, but stressed that diplomatic relations with Israel would remain open and that Turkish efforts were continuing to seek the release of hostages held by Hamas. Gallup Dalai, associate fellow at Chatham House in London, says Erdogan is seeking to keep his options open. The rhetoric is harsh, but the concrete measures are not that harsh, at least in terms of the bilateral uh, relationship. I think one way is the idea that if you burn bridges completely, you might not be able to play the diplomatic role as much as you hope to play. Earlier this month, Secretary of State Antony Blinken visited Ankara for the first time since the outbreak of the Middle East war. Blinken, in a tacit acknowledgement of Turkey's efforts, said third-party countries are playing a role in securing the release of the hostages. But the lie of Chatham House warns there are limits to Ankara's nuanced approach toward Israel. If Turkey is convinced 
that actually the diplomatic track is not uh, working. And if other regional countries, not only Turkey, arrives at the same conclusion that Israel is not paying any attention to this diplomatic track or the call for ceasefire, then we might see both at the regional level and Turkey level, the countries taking punitive actions. Erdogan's large religious base is at the forefront of growing protests against Israel. And that will likely add pressure on the Turkish leader to take a harder stance against Israel if the violence continues. Dorian Jones, DW, Istanbul. Two years and nine months of court proceedings, 207 convictions and sentences amounting to 2,150 years of collective jail time. This week, one of the biggest mafia trials in decades reached its dramatic conclusion in Italy. So big was the trial, indeed, that it took the president of the court over an hour and a half just to read out the names and sentences of the guilty, which included both mobsters from the notorious Ndrangheta Mafia and their white-collar accomplices. To find out more about this extraordinary trial, I spoke to organised crime expert Dr Zora Hauser, a postdoctoral fellow in sociology at the University of Oxford. Ndrangheta is one of the historical Italian mafias. We have uh, three of them, one in Sicily, uh, one in the area around uh, Napoli, that's also in the south of Italy, and one in Calabria, that's the Ndrangheta. It's been around uh, for 150 years, more or less. So it is very significant in terms of how long this organization has been around and how resilient this organization is. Um, it is organized in different cells. We call them clans. They are mafia families. Each of these families or clans are quite independent in the business decisions. They can decide, for example, to invest in drugs, mainly in cocaine. We see this is the case nowadays. They can decide to get involved in politics. Uh, but still, we see a lot of extortion. What we see is they're involved in all sorts of business. But one of the most important and uh, I would say worrying aspects of this organization is that it's not only active in Calabria, in the south of Italy, where it comes from, but it's spread uh, all over the world. So this is really what makes this organization so dangerous or at least uh, special as opposed to other organizations which have spread as well uh, beyond their territory of origin, but not to an extent uh, as it is the case for the Ndrangheta. And one element of this danger is, of course, the extent to which the Ndrangheta has been able to establish itself and anchor itself uh, in political institutions, in civil society. And as you indicated at the beginning, one of the most significant things about this trial wasn't so much the mobsters that were up, up in court as their white-collar enablers. What do these sort of convictions reveal about um, the Ndrangheta and, and its power? Uh, what these convictions really revealed is that uh, the mafia is a criminal phenomenon that is not working necessarily against the state, but within the state. And that's difference. We've seen, for example, with the Cosa Nostra in the 1990s, when bombs were placed, when judges were killed, when magistrates were killed, that the Cosa Nostra, the Sicilian mafia, declared war against the state. The Ndrangheta doesn't do that. The Ndrangheta works with the state works with 
politicians. We've seen, for example, members of the regional council in um, in Calabria that have been involved and convicted during this uh, trial. We've seen members of uh, of the parliament uh, that have been involved uh, with Ndrangheta and convicted. But we also see members of the police, member uh, magistrates that have, in a way or in another, been uh, complicit. Uh, with the Ndrangheta. And this is really important to understand because uh, there is a huge difference from being just an alternative to the state and being basically embedded within the state. Now, the extent to which this happens uh, obviously can vary depending on the city, depending on the province in Calabria itself. We see that it's been the case in the province of Vigo Valencia, and that's what um, Rinascita Scott really brought to light. But it's been the same in other parts of Calabria as well. And what we see as well is that this is not exclusive to the south of Italy. We've seen that this is a modus operandi that we can recognize in other parts of Italy, for example, as well. Or as far as I'm concerned, what I've been studying for the past five years, its presence in Germany, we see exactly the same attempt, at least, certainly not the same success in doing so, but this, the same attempt in uh, looking for vicinity, in looking for being close to institutions and not actively fighting against these institutions. And not just the institutions, by the way, also society. Nendrangheta embeds itself in the community, in the local community, in the local society. And this is the case in Calabria, as well as in other parts of the world. I've documented that uh, in Germany, for example, and in Switzerland. Well, I mean, I'd love to hear more about how the Andrangheta works in Germany. Perhaps you could sort of pick up there and also, you know, tell me whether or not this trial will affect the way that it operates abroad and particularly in Germany. So in Germany, we know that the first individuals connected to the Ndrangheta already arrived in the late 60s, beginning of the 70s. They then came together in cells in Ndrine, these are the clans, and that look very much like the clans that uh, that we know in Calabria. And ever since, so ever since the 70s, these clans continued operating, basically without interruption up until today. Uh, just yesterday, uh, there was a piece of news which I found very interesting interesting. Uh, there is an inquiry in uh, East Germany about the presence of the mafia there and how infiltrated it is in the community and in politics. And a judge, a former judge, uh, testified to it, saying that he was close friend to one of the frontmen of a mafia clan and that he helped him uh, basically getting away with charges uh, on drug trafficking. It gives us a little bit of an idea of how this organization is infiltrating uh, entire societies, not just in places like Calabria, where unemployment is rampant, where there is basically no alternative for the future, but also in places that uh, actually have pretty good conditions in which all of these problematic conditions are not present. It's an organisation with many heads and the mythical image that uh, comes to mind there is, of course, the hydra. But when you uh, try and cut off the head of a hydra, another one grows in its place. Is that going to be the same sort of scenario that we're going to see after after these trials? Or will yeah, Ndrangheta really have been slain? 
Well, this is an, uh, a trial that uh, looks at very specific constellation of clans in one province in Calabria. Uh, we know uh, today uh, at least 150 different clans uh, can be traced back to the organization. So, yes, it's going to be another clan that takes uh, its place. It's not going to be immediate. And we've seen the trial manage to bring to justice and to convict some of the more, most important bosses. This is already very important. And it will certainly weaken the organization in that very specific part of the region, but not in other parts of the region, not in the area of Crotone, for example, Cosenza, in other provinces and in other parts of the world. This trial has basically no effect whatsoever. Dr. Zora Hauser is a specialist researcher in organised crime and a postdoctoral research fellow at the University of Oxford. Now, in the week of Sam Altman's dramatic exit from and then return to ChatGTP's mother company, we decided that it's high time that we check back in with the EU's ongoing attempts to regulate the runaway technology that is generative AI. Those attempts are grouped together under the EU's AI Act, which is currently in its final stages of adoption and, when implemented, will represent the Western world's first set of mandatory boundaries for artificial intelligence. Our reporter, Ben Batka, travelled to Spain, which currently holds the rotating EU Council presidency, where he spoke with AI startups, industry representatives and AI researchers at the Small and Medium Enterprise Assembly in Bilbao. What are the consequences of termination? The consequences of termination are outlined in Section 13 of the agreement. Here are the specific consequences. One, the supplier may be invited to tender for the right to... Martin Regan, co-founder of Slovak startup Sequence AI, uses voice recognition to enter a so-called prompt in a simple chatbot interface. In less than 10 seconds, the underlying artificial intelligence, or AI, sifts through thousands of contracts with tens of thousands of pages and spits out a detailed answer with bullet points. And those eight bullet points refer to a part of a contract which you can navigate right away to. So you can check your answer immediately. Uh, so now you can make an educated business decision and decide how to proceed in this in this term. Risk mitigation is a huge part of this. But then again, imagine a use case where you need an immediate answer. Let's say, would I pay a penalty if I did this with the supplier X? The questions you can ask are you know almost unlimited. Reagan, who says the AI is 80 to 90 percent accurate during the implementation and gets better as it learns from more customers' data, presented his AI contract management software at the Basque Open Industry Exhibition in Bilbao this month. One thousand kilometers to the northeast, in Brussels, the negotiations about the EU's AI Act are currently in the last phase of the legislative process with the main institutions of the European Union gathered in so-called trilogues to hash out the final dispositions of the bloc's key piece of legislation to regulate artificial intelligence. Presented by the European Parliament in June, the draft law is positioned to be the West's first comprehensive set of regulations on AI with the overarching goal of putting guardrails around the development and use of the technology. Reagan, who says they've signed up several enterprise and smaller clients so far, thinks the AI Act will have both positive and negative consequences. The opinions that we are hearing is kind of mixed. We work with contracts and highly sensitive data, 
This is the first thing they ask us. If the regulations and the AI Act in Europe basically gives more trust to our clients, trust in meaning data is safe and the AI is not going to just take it and put it somewhere that, where they don't want to have it. That's going to have a great impact for us as well. Last week, negotiations on the AI Act abruptly stopped over so-called foundation models, large deep learning neural networks that power chatbots like the one of Sequence AI. Then, Germany, France and Italy, the EU's three largest countries, over the weekend warned that slapping tough restrictions on these newfangled models would harm the EU's own champions like German open AI competitor Aleph Alpha. Europe needs a regulatory framework which fosters innovation and competition so that European players can emerge and carry our voice and values in the global race of AI, the three countries said in a joint paper, which suggests self-regulating foundation models through company pledges and codes of conduct. My name is Margaret Rutzki. I'm working at the Confederation of Crafts and Small Businesses. We are based in Brussels and represent over one million crafts companies. I spoke to Rutzki last week in Bilbao at the European Commission's flagship conference on small and medium enterprises, or SMEs. It is with great pleasure that I'm here today at the opening of the SME Assembly 2023. Depending on how narrow or broad one defines AI, between 2 and 8% of craft enterprises in the EU used AI last year, according to a Bitcom study. But 5% plan on using it in the future. Rutzki believes regulation is precisely what's needed. The main objective of the AI Act to generate more trust for the consumers, for the users, and be competitive with the other parts of, of the world, like the US and China. Just imagine an AI-powered garage door. There is a certain malfunctioning with the algorithm. It kills the cats. Um, now, who is li liable? We need to resolve all these thorny legal questions in order to increase a higher adoption of AI. Echoing the German, French and Italian call for less regulation, Sequence AI co-founder Martin Regan, whose contract intelligence chatbot has been trained on OpenAI's ChatGPT4 foundation model, among others, thinks the reporting duties and other transparency obligations the AI Act might entail could put EU companies at a competitive disadvantage. My main concern with the AI Act and the regulation of AI in Europe is how competition is going to be uh, slowed down here compared to US startups working with AI. For example, here when you create a new model, new technology, and until you get an approval or uh, you know review from the regulator, someone in US can come up with the same idea or copy your idea, get it in the market much faster and blows you out of the water and you lose your entire business. The AI Act differentiates between different risk levels, from limited risk over generative AI like ChatGPT or Google's BARD to what lawmakers consider high-risk applications, such as real-time biometric surveillance in public spaces. Finally, technology like facial recognition tools or social scoring pose unacceptable risk and are to be banned. One of the aims of the Act is to protect democratic processes like elections from AI-generated deepfakes and other sources of disinformation. This is especially topical in light of next year's EU-wide elections. Earlier this month, European Union lawmaker Brendo Benifei, one of the architects of the AI Act, told Reuters he expects it will serve as a blueprint that countries around the globe could use for their legislation. Uh, we worked on this uh, risk framework that could be applied also in a different form, less uh, mandatory than the EU one, but it could be a model for other uh, applications in other parts of the world. Ben Bartke, DW, Bilbao. Lots to process there, so why not defrag your modem with a trip to the circus? Coming up in a minute. I'm Kate Laycock in Germany. Apologies for the puns. You're listening to Inside Europe. 
Running away to the circus has long been a euphemism for abdicating the strictures of society in favour of something more exotic and carefree. Those who have spent years training to be a trapeze artist, acrobat or clown know, however, just how much hard work and discipline goes into mastering their craft. Our reporter, Louise Gorman, has been checking out a small big top in Berlin, which is offering young people a taste of the art form known as contemporary circus, both on and off the stage. There's a frenetic energy whizzing about this high-pitched space overlooking the river Spree. These kids are learning the art of spinning plates on a stick, and Diablo, a juggling prop in which one throws and catches a spinning top on a cord, fastened to two rods. Sometimes it works, and other times, well, not. These fledgling performers are among 30 primary school-aged kids who've joined Circus Schatz Insel for a week of fun. Under a small big top nestled in a leafy patch of Kreuzberg, the focus is on trying new things and learning different skills. It's the day before the big show, but celebrating every person is an important daily ritual. The dress rehearsal has come to a close and each group has gone through their respective acts in the various disciplines of aerial silks, trapeze, floor acrobatics, juggling and magic show routines. It's time to say goodbye until tomorrow. Six-year-old Willem bursts out of the tent and runs to his waiting mother. We did all the things what we'll do at the Buna. Yeah, it was so cool in there. Aside from tricks, he and his older brother Oliver have costumes on their minds. And because I also have my hat in the same colour, so the parents will wear different kinds of stuff, and that would be cool because then I have black and white stuff and then colourful. As well as clowns, the brothers and their co jugglers will transform into zombies for their top secret Diablo act. In German and uh, in English, you use the same word to play and play on stage and play a game. The point where you, you really see the potential of this tool of circus, you learning by playing. That's circus trainer Mattia Mancini. The 42-year-old Italian's first taste of the circus was in London, living with street performers from Covent Garden. Not the circus that you find in the, under the tent, but the one that you find on the street. So I was fascinated about these people that were going to work with white face or like with crystal ball, whatever clown. And that was the first time that I get really interested of that. And then one of them at Diablo. So I start, I was in 2003, I was 21. I start to play Diablo, I start to play with balls. The kindergarten teacher says he learned Diablo to relax. It was my way to get peace when I was studying, pedagogue, to take a break. So go outside and play on the park with clubs and balls. So it was something that was belonged to me, uh, that I learned a bit to do it, but not as a performer. Performing is pivotal to Emma Lawler's work as a circus artist. 
The 32-year-old Berliner requires eight meters of roof space to practice her aerial routines and says contemporary circus offers rare insights into the limits of the human body. There is a body on stage and maybe this body is in danger or in a difficult situation. It's being pushed to the edge of its capacities and that's something that everyone can relate to and we see that. We feel it almost in our own body and there's nothing we have to explain with words or anything. This is just self-explanatory. Laula has co-curated Sight for Circus, a festival showcasing over 65 acts across Germany to give the genre a boost in line with its cultural place in neighbouring countries. In France, for example, it's already very established in the cultural scene, whereas in Germany it's still pretty young as an art form. So in many places artists are performing for free, theatres and venues are opening their place to make things happen on this weekend to really show this is contemporary circus and there is a lot actually. The German festival coincides with the international La Nuit du Cirque, an event spanning three continents. Circus Schatzinsel is a supporting venue in Berlin. But for now, it's showtime for this group of young, aspiring circus devotees. And it wouldn't be a circus without clowns. The audience is greeted by a series of slapstick greetings, hat tricks and, of course, a serious amount of mime. Oh, and a skit about talking bins, or roaring ones. <laughs> These kids are having a ball. And even when everything doesn't go to plan, encouraging applause from the public remind these novice performers that no matter what, the show must go on. Louise Gorman, DW, at Circus Schatzinsel in Berlin. And that, ladies and gentlemen, was our final act of the show. This programme was produced by Helen Sini, with help from me, Kate Laycock, and sound engineer, Ziad Abu Sleiman. Inside Europe comes to you from DW in Germany.